We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. My witness today is Martina Schneider, who is a psychotherapist and trained as a meditation teacher in the Vipassana tradition. When she works with clients, she comes at it from not just a psychological, but a spiritual perspective too. Now, she was originally from Pina in Germany and has recently moved back from San Francisco, where she lived for 15 years. We met each other through a friend of a friend. We met originally for coffee, sort of half an hour, and two and a half hours later, if I hadn't been rushing off, we'd still be talking. I found a lot that really interested me. I think because this idea of having a psychological and a spiritual perspective for therapy. At the bottom of this program, The Meaningful Life, I think it raises spiritual questions. I'm very interested to talk to you about your spiritual journey, discover about it from what I can learn, and I think for what everybody can learn about how the spiritual affects the psychological. So welcome to the programme. Thank you very much for for coming and being on the programme today. Thank you. A question I've just started asking my clients is, what do you worship? Now, why do you think that is an interesting question? Because I'm sure that informs your work too. Mm. It's in the first place interesting because... It gives me an idea of what people focus on in life, right? Where, where, where do you put your attention? Because that will tell you a lot about the person. You know, do you worship money? Do you worship relationships? Do you worship love? What, what is it, right? Where, where are your priorities in life? Or success. Success, right. Intelligence. Mm. Beauty. Beauty. <laughs> A big one, right? Beauty, yes. One of the reasons I ask people, and I follow it up with this quote from David Foster Wallace, who is an American writer or was an American writer, there is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual thing to worship is pretty much everything else will eat you alive. Mm. Have you found clients who worship, let's say, beauty, are they being eaten alive by it? (laughs) Does that quote speak to you? It does, because beauty goes, right? Everything that we worship, which is impermanent, will at one point kind of bring us to a place of asking, you know, so what now? I have a partner that is super young and super beautiful, and then 10, 12 years later, the person doesn't look the same. So what do I do with that? And how do you feel about yourself if you're worshipping your own beauty? It's sort of death by a thousand cuts, really, isn't it? Because you slowly, slowly can see like it's going away. If you put your emphasis there, your priorities, if you see that as what fulfills you in life, at one point you will be in trouble. And I don't mean like that it's totally wrong to worship beauty or money or whatever, right? It has its place, but you also have to see where does it have its limitations. I think it's a difference between appreciating beauty Mm. and serving it. Yes. And I think worshipping, I almost get my clients to imagine there's an altar and I get them to actually personify the god or goddess Mm. and say, well, what are we going to call this god or goddess So here's an example. Somebody who worshipped time management decided that this goddess would be called Philofaxia. (laughs) And it sort of brings it all to life like that. Let's look at your spiritual journey, because you have been on a, a spiritual journey. But I want to take you right back to Germany and Pina, which is the district but it was a small village you lived in. So give us the name of the village. <laughs> it, it's called Groß Lafferde. It's a tiny little village with like 2,000 people at that time. Now, maybe now we have 3,000 people, right? It has grown. How you can find it in, in Germany, you kind of, you satisfy it in the community if you stay there and you build a house probably and you have children. And a lot of people are very satisfied with that. And on a Sunday, they put their Sunday best on and they go for a walk, don't they? <laughs> 
<laughs> there's like a, like a story that I remember, right? Like when I was like 14, it was very much done. To, today, not so much anymore, right? But in, when I was 14, they were still, you know, putting on nice clothing. It, it looked different. And I was standing at the window of my grandmother and looking down and I had a very clear sense in myself that I remember to this day, I will not do this. I didn't know why at that point. I didn't have a deep insight about it. I just knew this is not for me. But you did do the sort of good German daughter thing and you went off to university. What what did you study? First of all, I went to beautician school, <laughs> which was really a mistake. Because I, I, that's a whole other story. I found myself after two years, that was a big mistake. Then I decided I have to go back and do my Abitur, which is like the last three years to go to university in the next town. I, I just needed to get out of the village. My parents' expectation was that I would do something very simple, like being a beautician. Not that I mean it's simple, but, you know, something, something that very, is... Very regular. Yeah, regular, like grounded, where you have a good income. And so you would stay in the village. And I just needed to get out. I knew that from early on. There was just a pull to get out. I knew, I think, looking back, I think I knew in my gut that I cannot find what I want here. But I didn't have that clear when I was 18. Well, 19. So what did you study at university? I studied at university publishing in Chinese, <laughs> which was also completely, I did not know what to do there. So I just thought that's a nice idea, but I'm not talented for learning Chinese because you need a very particular memory. And so after half a year, I said, okay, this is the dead end here. And so what did you do? I dropped out of university. I bet that was popular. That was very popular, especially I didn't tell my parents for half a year that I was dropped out. <laughs> so I was like, and then I was like, okay, what should I do now? Right? I, I got a job. I saved a little money. And then a friend of mine told me in India every year around Christmas, there is this meditation retreat in Bhatgaya. It's a particular town in India with a particular teacher. And why don't you go? And so I went. What was it like? It opened my mind in a completely new way. I mean, first of all, you meet so many people from all over the world. You know, what are their reasons to come to this particular retreat? Now, it's interesting. It's, it's engaging and people have different kinds of stories. And for me to sit and have the first experience of my body, mind, heart, which is ultimately, all, you know, all connected, but really sitting with yourself in silence was very powerful because the whole retreat was a 10-day silent retreat. You only would break silence to speak to your teacher. And this is what we mentioned at the beginning, Vipassana. Yes, exactly. That's where I got introduced to it the first time. The teacher at that time was Christopher Titmus. He's a teacher from England. He founded Gaia House, which I think is in the south of England somewhere. So what's it like being silent for 10 days? I think I would have trouble being silent for 10 minutes, to be honest. The difference is that everybody else is also silent. Right? It's not that you sit alone in a corner and there's life around you. It's like there are 25 or more, maybe 50 people that were all committed to the same thing of going there and they wanted to see what, what is actually there. I mean, that's how I came. I, I had no idea what I was looking for. I just thought, wouldn't it be interesting to sit with yourself for 10 days? I would imagine that you discovered, first of all, that your head is full of a lot of <laughs> blab, blab, blab. Blab, 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 It's amazing. You start remembering your high school sweetheart or your first kiss completely, if he's completely random, what comes into your head. In the first place, you see like the functioning of the mind because you see like, oh my God, there's constantly thinking. Then you see like, oh my God, I'm constantly comparing myself. This person sits more straight. This person sits more still. It's amazing what can happen. And that person looks far more spiritual than <laughs> exactly. I am. If they would know, right? If they would know who's sitting here, it's very much the comparing mind. They call us in, in the Vipassana tradition, the yogi mind where you just hook on to something that has very little reality, but you make a big deal out of it. And that, I would think, is a pretty fundamental insight. Yes. Explain to me why it's a fundamental insight. Because these obsessions, let it either be people fall in love, 
you know, in these retreats. Seriously, in three hours, you're married to that person. It, it's stunning. You start thinking, oh, they're so beautiful. Oh, how would it be to be married? We could live there. It just involves, and then after two hours, you see, wow, I have so gotten away from the present moment, which was the focus of these retreats. And so to deeply understand where the mind can go and the projection that we have, right? or to project something on my neighbor. And projection is when something belongs to us, like yes. that person is a really aggressive person. And because we can't deal with our own aggression, it's much easier to point at somebody else who's aggressive or we imagine is aggressive. That's what you mean by projection. Yes, correctly. You, for example, you sit next to somebody and they move a lot on their seat. And it makes me feel a little agitated because I want to sit, sit there quietly. You know, I feel disturbed by him or her. So you can project all kinds of things. For example, oh, they must have a lot of problems, you know, or they're very aggressive. And then later you talk to them and the whole thing falls like, it's like a puff into nothing, into hot air. And you kind of stand by the projection that you see so clearly and also the buildup in your mind that you see so clearly, right? And that happens to us all the time in life. We see somebody on the street, we have an immediate reaction and we believe our thoughts. I mean, if we put it very simple, my first insight I think was, oh my God, I cannot believe every thought I have. And that sounds rather unsettling, to be perfectly honest. Mm, it wasn't. Why not? It was actually comforting because what I found instead is there's a whole other place in myself where I can trust. This is a little hard to describe, but it's, mm. like, but it's a resting point in oneself where you know this is more the place of wisdom to look towards than my thoughts that are just randomly often project. I mean, obviously we need thinking. Thinking is a very good tool to have. But there's something in me that has a deeper knowledge and situation when it comes to being tuned in or intuitive with somebody. So how long does it take for the mind to blur itself out to peace? Because <laughs> I, I know that famously, the first few days are like hell on earth on yes. this retreat. And lots of people quit before they get through that point. When does your mind begin to slow down or become more peaceful? I think it depends on the person and their life situation. Right? If you come in there and you just had a divorce, you will spend, it could be for 10 days, potentially. Mm -hmm. But then it also depends how many retreats you have done. So how much have you trained your mind? And sometimes there also have been retreats where I would just drop in and there was almost no beginning agitation in the mind. And, and the idea is also that everything is actually welcomed. So when the agitation is there, you watch the agitation. I mean, obviously you have a preference. That you would rather drop straight into yes. it. But if you don't, the job is to accept the fact that yes. you can't drop into it. And learn from it. And learn from it, because ultimately you want to translate these 10-day meditation retreats into your daily life, which is not easy. But you, you see that ultimately that you can learn to be whatever comes your way. So if it's agitation, it is very helpful to learn how to sit with agitation. And they would give you techniques. For example, one of them for this is mental noting. When the agitation is really big and the story is like just pulling you in all kinds of directions that you say, oh, agitation is like this. And then what can happen is that I guess it's almost like a little bubble. It, it pops and then you can come to a place that is quite peaceful. So anger is like this. Anger is like this. And then with anger, for example, you would say anger is like this. And then you go into the body and you feel it. I feel it in my chest, it's pulsing, it's hot, my stomach is turning. So you stay with the actual sensations. The idea is not that you, well, we get attached to the idea that these feelings go away. This is natural, right? Who likes to sit with anger? But originally the idea is that you sit with it, you sit with it, you sit with it, and it goes by itself. I often talk to my clients about feelings being a river and we sit beside the river and watch it. 
and we're not in the water management business. Our job is not to try and row the water down the river quicker mm. and not to try and block it either. So pleasure comes along and let's dam the river now and we can sit with pleasure forever. It doesn't work like that. We are angry now, but in another 10 minutes, you might feel something entirely different. Mm-hmm. It might not be very nice. It might be anxiety, but <laughs> you won't be angry forever. And that's important to remember. In this tradition, especially what we are focusing on, speaking to what you described, is that you see the impermanence of things. Impermanence of things. Now, that sounds a very important concept. Yes. Tell me about that. So what you just described, right? There's anger and then there's anxiety and something else comes. So life is a constant flow. And what we are told, most of us, I think, at least I would say in the Western part of the world, is that we can control it. And we have a little bit of control. But first of all, we need to notice what is going on. How can you control what you don't notice? That's what I mean. You have to notice first. Mm. But you also have only control that much. You can notice it. You can do all the good techniques that you know. You can choose how you respond to it. That's one thing you do have control over. I can't have control over the fact that somebody drives me up the wall but I can control what I do with that. Mm -hmm. Also with the knowing somewhere through the insight that I have gained in these meditation retreats, you have also the knowledge that the anger will go at one point. Because when really intense emotions show up, you feel like, for example, you were left by your partner. You know, the grief of that. You feel it's endless. And grief and anger are very appropriate feelings, aren't they? Yes. That's the other. The invitation is everything is allowed to be here. There's no right, no wrong. It just is. It just is. So you see it for what it is and you learn to sit with it. And when you have enough training, you can see the impermanence of it. You can see how it slowly, slowly changes. Maybe it gets bigger for a little while, the anxiety. Then it gets less. And then when you have the understanding of what is going on, you can use your tools that you learn in therapy or from friends to help yourself. At the end of this 10 days, you were changed in some way or am I being too strong with that? I would say it's true. I don't think it happens to everybody. But what happened to me was that I got so curious about my mind and the process, which I knew I didn't understand at that point. 10 days is not a long time. But I became like a retreat addict. Right. So... (laughs) What do retreat addicts do then? Retreat addicts, what they do is they go to as many retreats as they can. And in between, you know, I had to work. So I would then go back to Berlin, work and make a little money. And then I would go back to Asia because that was the place mostly where I could afford the retreats. Mm -hmm. But then also later I, I went to some retreats in England, to Gaia House. I went to a retreat center in France. There's also a retreat center here in Germany. So I would find the places. That was my focus. And I was driven by it. And at that point, I couldn't really tell you why. No? Now I know more. So what do you think is the longest retreat you went on then? It was nine months. A nine-month retreat. So what does a nine-month retreat look like? I went to Burma. Yeah. I ordained as a Buddhist nun. You trained as a Buddhist nun. I, I, I ordained. Oh, you ordained as a Buddhist I nun. I ordained as a Buddhist nun. But this came after quite a lot of retreat experience. And then I had the wish to see, do I want to be a nun in this lifetime? Gosh. <laughs> So and I, how old were you when you decided you were going to become a nun? 30. 30? Yes. So that's quite a while ago. Yes. So I went, I ordained, I put on the robes, I shaved my head. What did that feel like, putting on the robes and shaving your head? The interesting thing is that I expected, and also from other people that have done it before, I expected it would feel like, oh my God, you're part of this lineage, it's something. And I put it on, I was like, oh, I have done this before. I mean, you have to know, based on my belief system, I believe in in several lifetimes. So I didn't just have this lifetime. So it was almost like a recognition. I was like, oh, I've done this before. Was that good? It was good. It was a little calming, but it didn't feel in particular very special. Because from the outside, you can think, oh, you know, she went there and she ordained as a nun. And And I felt like that beforehand. But then when I put on the robes and I shaved my head, I was like, oh, 
it just feels familiar. So there was a comfort, like in a, in a strange, comforting, calm way, there was a comfort. And so do you think that past life was what was actually driving you to all these retreats then? Or was it something else? I, well, I don't, you know, it's hard to know what really comes through what past lives, but I would think that the drive that I have in this life comes from other lives that I had before and certain experiences. What that was exactly, I don't know. But but I think from early on, I had a certain drive, or I don't know if drive is the right word, a wish, a deep wish to understand what life is about and what I'm about. Mm. And that might be one of the reasons why we connect so much, because I think that those are things that I'm interested in as well and trying to make sense of things and sort of mapping out these things. So at the moment, I'm very interested in the unconscious and I want a map of the unconscious, <laughs> which I think is a bit of a hard task to set to yourself. But, you know, I believe that there should be a map. But the beautiful thing for me is the wish. And I think also to people who are listening to this, maybe they might listen to this. I mean, your title is A Meaningful Life, yes. right? So there must be something that draws a listener inwardly to what is a meaningful life. And I think that in our Western world, we have a spiritual crisis because we're actually trying to choose happiness rather than meaning. And whereas happiness is almost like chasing bubbles, meaningfulness, to me, at least feels more grounded. There's something more to investigate there. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm interested in the meaningful life and launched this podcast as part of my journey to the meaningful life. And I hope by interviewing witnesses that I will get some knowledge on this journey and I'm going to help other people make this journey too. So did becoming a Buddhist nun add meaning to your life? Yes. I mean, it deepened very much my practice at that point. I have to say with the Vipassana practice, which we are talking about right now, also the Vipassana practice comes from Burma. It is Buddhist at the center of it, is it? Yes, exactly. I saw at one point a limitation with it. But at that point, when I was a nun, I was still very much involved in the practice and it was meaningful at that point. Even later on, I saw like there is even to this practice, there's a limitation. But at that point, coming back to your question, I was mostly by myself. I was sitting in this little hut. It was really hot. It's probably the hottest climate that I ever have been in. There was a teacher, but he didn't really speak much English. So I was pretty much on my own. And I grew on a level that I think it's hard to completely understand or you know like over time I have grown and that was another piece that added so you're sitting in a, a hut in intense heat mm. I assume on the floor no we had a place to sit on. you had a chair uh, yes yes no actually a little nice bed and you're a little bit more comfortable than the vision that <laughs> exactly. I had because I think people's idea of a nun is you go out into the world and you do good works and you teach and you tend for the sick but this is actually sitting and learning what? Going inward to understand. At that point, I knew I was further in the practice. I wanted to understand who I was ultimately. So that's a good question. Who were you? I couldn't get the answer at that time. I mean, what happened was I deepened my practice. I had more understanding of how the mind works, how the body is involved, how feelings are coming and going. I saw very clearly like the impermanence of things. And that in itself, it's a very important tool and beautiful. And it can bring much meaning to your life. But I knew somewhere, even while I was in the retreat, that this is not the end game yet. There's something else that I still don't understand. I knew I was on the right track to something, but I was not sure where, where I would end up. So what came next? After nine months, I decided this is not for me. I'm not a nun in this lifetime. <laughs> is it easy to, to become a non-nun? In that particular tradition, yes. It's not like you become a Catholic nun or something and you should be that for the rest of your life. No, actually, in, the, in, in, in my mind, it's very much so that you can go for, as a practice period. And then you can put the ropes aside and go back into your life. And I did that and I went back to the US where I was sitting a lot in there's a particular meditation center, Spirit Rock in California, 
or IMS in Boston, Massachusetts. So I went back to that meditation center to practice more. But at that point, I was already into the practice probably for six, seven years, I would think. And I got more and more dissatisfied because, yes, I have learned a lot. I learned about my feelings, my mind, which means like you can relate much better to any mind states and any experience that you have in your life, right? You have more equanimity to walk into situations, but it didn't in particular give me the answer that I wanted. And the answer you wanted was what? I didn't know that at that time. That must be very frustrating. I was extremely frustrated. I wouldn't say I was falling into depression, but I felt pretty down. And and I expect your teacher was saying you need to accept the frustration, you yes, need to accept exactly. the depression. And he said, I want to scream inside. <laughs> I would actually go into these. Then I went back and did a three-month retreat in Boston. And and. Sometimes in these retreats, I had the experience of your body completely falling away. It's kind of a crumbling. It's You have no more boundaries. I realized later it's actually just an experience. So I would, I would go to my teachers and say, there's something else. And they would say at that time, don't make a story out of it. Just sit with it. You will gain the insight. And I just decided for myself at one point, with all the respect to my teachers at that time, that I can sit here until I'm blue in the face. I don't think I will get the answer. So you've spent seven plus years to get to the point that <laughs> I'm not going to get the answer. <laughs> yes. Uh, but I have to say about the tradition, I very much appreciate what it taught me, right? Th that's no question. But I was after a more fundamental question. Because in these sitting experiences, I could tell that this body that I receive as Martina, completely separate, individual body, is not separate from the rest of us. So the idea that you are a separate person from, at this precise moment, me, because I'm here in the room, and Michael, my producer, the idea that we're three separate people is an illusion, is what you're saying. Well, in this meditation state, sitting on the pillow, yes, that would fall away. There was a sense of oneness as an experience. But then when you get off the pillow, you know, you walk into the dining hall and get upset because somebody took the last piece of bread, mm -hmm. right? That was absolutely there again. You didn't feel at one with the universe. You <laughs> no, felt I was, very annoyed I was, with I was it. Very annoyed of somebody taking the last piece of bread. So, but I had these glimpses and I wanted to understand it. But I couldn't find the teachers at that point who had the answers for it. So you're depressed, you're frustrated, you've spent all this time getting to this place that is beautiful but is not answering your question. Yeah. What do you do next? I was just in kind of a holding position, almost waiting position for two years after. Gosh, that sounds really difficult. I'm, waiting is not my strong point. <laughs> It wasn't mine either. It was pretty difficult. In the tradition I was in, they would always say, oh, if, if you're ready, your teacher will come along. Do you believe that? Not in, in that moment. I didn't because no. I was waiting, sitting there. I was like, maybe I'm not ready. Maybe I'm not ready. But then I had the thought, oh, my friend Ute, who went years ago to India, met this teacher and had quite a transformation and told me about these teachings quite a bit. They're called Vedanta. Right. How do you spell that if people want to look it up? V-E-D-A-N-T-A. -A. Right. And this is from a, a separate tradition, isn't it? This is from the Hindu tradition rather than the Buddhist tradition. Yes. And I remembered that she came back quite transformed and she always wanted to talk with me about these teachings, but I didn't really want to listen to it because I was into Vipassana. Why would I take something else? But then I remembered, and that afternoon... I wrote an email to her and I said, do you remember, you know, you met this man? And she said, oh, yeah, his name is James. Can you give me his email? I was living in Berkeley, California at this point, which is very close to San Francisco. So I wrote that email that afternoon to this man, James. And I said to him, if you're ever in Berkeley again, because I know he was traveling quite a bit, would you mind meeting with me? Because I have these questions that I cannot answer. And he wrote back in 10 minutes 
and said like, oh, I am in Berkeley, California right now. I could meet you for coffee in half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> you wait two years and then I you've only got to wait half an hour. And he lived two blocks from me. Wow. At that point. Not permanently, but he was there to visit for several months. Now, in Jungian idea of synchronicity, nothing happens by coincidence. Mm -hmm. Would you buy into that thought that yes. this actually was not a coincidence? This was in some way, I'm going to sound terribly airy-fairy, meant to be? Very much so. I believe through the Vedanta teachings that there's an order to things. So it was completely in order that this teacher was there at that particular time when I was ripe and ready to talk to him. And so what was the meeting like? Quite mind-blowing, I have to say. And I don't use that word often, but it really was quite outstanding because he laid out the teachings to me and he said like very much, well, you were focused on experiences in Vipassana. I had experiences of, of oneness. I had experiences of like, I'm not separate in the world. But these experiences come and go. What he said is what counts is actually the knowledge of it. Right. That means that in whatever life situation you are, you have the knowledge of that you are not a limited individual. And so he laid out the teachings to me. I mean, it, it took me a year to really wrap my mind around it. That that These are not in particular easy teachings to understand. No, I mean, I have been reading material that has Vedanta in it or philosophers like Ken Wilber and other people like that who are interested in this idea of oneness. But it's very difficult to get your head around. Can you sort of try and give us a beginner's guide? How... Can I not be an, a separate person from you, who we've only just met, sort of okay. kind of thing? In the Vedanta tradition, they talk about two levels. So this experience is as though also real, right? I experience you as separate, I experience you as separate from me. That has its place. But through the knowledge of the teachings, you understand that you're ultimately not a separate individual, that there is a completeness and a wholeness to you that I think ultimately we're all looking for. And that was so stunning for me because I think that looking is outwardly happiness, relationship, money, sex, whatever it is. But when we look inwardly, my teacher would always say, because we're so close to it that we miss it. And we're so close to actually the truth that we miss it because we have the experience of a separation. But the teaching methodology where it's laid out step by step, how you can understand that you're not separate, actually. That the, that the happiness, the satisfaction that you look for is actually here in yourself. That there is not even a chance, and that's where we also go a little bit back to psychology, there's not even a chance that you're not perfect as you are. So just explain that to me. When you understand more of who you are, you see like there is a wholeness to yourself. That means when you go into therapy and you say like, oh, I have anger, I have frustration, I have this, I do this wrong. I see my clients, or I try to see my clients with the lens that I see them in their completeness and their wholeness. And in that completeness and wholeness, things will come and go. Right? There will be anger. I might yell at somebody. I might even hit somebody. But ultimately, that doesn't touch my essence of who I am. So and when you understand these teachings, the teachings are coming from the Vedas. Right. So what are the, the Vedas? The Vedas is kind of the holy book, right? How the Christians have the Bible. The Hindus have the Vedan. And the last part of the Veda is called Vedanta. And it's actually a Sanskrit word. And it means the end of the Vedan. And there you find teachings that are called the Upanishads. And there's always a conversation between teacher and student. And in this conversation, they unfold the idea of who you are ultimately as a human being. And that there's ultimately no separateness, right? That I'm ultimately not separate from you, from the table, that we actually share the same essence. How long... Did it take you to 
take on board and understand, not just intellectually, but sort of in your whole body, this set of teachings? I think it took me at least six years. I also decided at one point of my life to go to India to live in an ashram because a teacher of a teacher of mine was teaching in that ashram a three and a half year course. And so I wanted to deepen my understanding. So I went to the ashram and listened to the teachings day in and day out, ultimately of, of who I am. And this is a little bit also for the listener, this is a little bit a concept that is hard to grasp and understand. It really takes time and the methodology to unfold it, to let it sit. I have heard in the past, like this idea that was also around in the 60s, oh, we all won. Okay, that's mm -hmm. nice, but I experience you as separate. So or I, I experience the table as separate. So how can I understand that? That it feels so far away from my experience. But the teachings lay out in more detail how you can understand that the essence is the same, that we all have consciousness as one essence. And out of that consciousness arises your body, my body, Berlin, the world, And it also will go back into consciousness. This journey has taken quite a while, hasn't it? Yes. I'm sort of wanting to deal with the thought that I'm having, and I'm sure lots of other people are having, is I sort of want to have knowledge, but I'm sorry, I don't think I want to wait 15 years <laughs> for it. I mean, how do, how do we deal with that? Because we want enlightenment, we want to become more spiritual, mm. But it seems a heck of a lot of work. I think it is. Mm. I think it takes a huge commitment. It's, it's interesting because, especially with, with the Vedanta tradition, in a way you're committing to something, to learn something that you already are. So this is kind of a paradox that you kind of have to wrap your mind around. So I'm already this, but actually I need to spend the time to understand, because what I think is I'm the body, I think I'm my bad habits, I'm thinking like this. So you have to kind of almost clear house to understand all of these things don't represent my true nature. So how has all of this changed your life? How are you living differently from that girl who decided to quit publishing in Chinese? <laughs> at university. <laughs> at university. <laughs> It changes my life very profoundly because I also understood that there's an order to life. That means there's karmic factors in this life that will determine my life to a certain degree. That doesn't mean I have to be passive. It doesn't mean I have no free will in this at all. But the big question is always, how much free will do I have? And what is actually already determined for me? But it's a completely different way to live in life where you lean more back and see what actually wants to happen and what doors want to open. And where you're going to lean into. Yes. Instead of what I think I have done in the past, and a lot of people I think tend to do, is we have an idea what we want. We go for it very strongly. Then it doesn't work out. We want to become rainmakers and human beings are not rainmakers. Yes. yes. And that creates a huge amount of suffering. And I think we don't even have to believe in karma for that. You just look back into your life. When did you have the idea you should study this? But somehow you never got the grades for it. Somehow you never were accepted in university or you wanted that particular lover and that never worked out. You put all your best effort, but you couldn't make it happen. And so then the grief and the suffering and the frustration and the self-doubt comes with that. I mean, I forget at times, often, but I try to remember that I'm not the one who drives the show. And certainly meeting you, I feel a sort of a peace at your core. I don't know if that's me projecting stuff onto <laughs> you, but that's what I, I feel, that this is a huge journey, but I personally see benefits from that journey. That's true. Because I think since I gained the knowledge of who I am, Not to perfection, I want to say, but have a pretty good idea. Life becomes more peaceful. Because it's such a difference if you run around, you know, when we talk in therapy about the inner critic that constantly nags at you and tells you you're not good enough. Or you hold the idea that you're actually ultimately whole and complete. 
And yes, you want to do the best in life, not to harm anybody, right? You, you part, in, in a way, I'm not living differently in society. I'm just not judging myself so much. Or other people. Or other people, no? which sometimes I do, but then I remember, right? <laughs> just like Martina, remember, right? Oops. <laughs> Oops, right? Little slip there. And to see, ultimately, I'm held by something that is much bigger than me. Well, we're going to look at a moment in how we can take this spiritual knowledge into a more down-to-earth psychological basis. We're going to look at a letter in just a moment. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. You're listening to The Meaningful Life, and we're talking about spirituality, psychology, reality. We're doing the really big topics today, and I think I'd like to sort of focus it right down onto one particular issue. And if you join our supporters club, you have the chance to write in with a letter like this person has done. My husband has been having an affair for nine months and recently moved in with his mistress, who is his secretary and 20 years younger than him. We're both in our 40s and have two teenage kids. It's completely out of character. He's always been committed to and proud of our life. He's moved from being a loving husband, I'm always there when you need me, and a loving father, successful at work, involved with friends and family and hobbies, to a middle-aged man with a young mistress. He's denying our kids' resentment towards her, the pain he causes, and he doesn't even seem to be happy, sneaking away from her the day they were moving in to be with our kids. He knows I want to reconcile. I never reacted angrily to his blame trying to convince me to move on. I'm taking care of myself and the kids and working on our issues, which I clearly underestimated. He has acknowledged this, but he has a new life. Our interactions have been friendly. There are no legal actions going on, no arguments either. The other woman is bothered. We're too kind. And that's when I get some pushback. I was hoping once he's back in reality, living in the real world, he might wake up. But it's taking a toll on me, knowing he's living with her. I can only do this for so long. Is there a timeline for him to recognise the other woman is not made of cream cheese? Or as you describe in your book, Andrew, the relationship will implode. So what were your thoughts when you were reading that? Mm. I mean, first of all, I had the wish I wanted to ask you more questions, which is not possible. Yep. So I'm going on just the information that I have. I think what stands out for me is that she expresses a wish to move on. And she's asking, is there a timeline to it? And I don't think there is in particular a timeline to it. But I would encourage her to feel into her own gut when it's enough. When is it actually enough? Because for him, I could see, we talked about it before, right? Maybe there's a spiritual crisis on his side, you know? It does feel like that, mm. doesn't it? It does feel like there is something fundamentally painful. Yeah. And a lot of people who are good husbands, good wives, good children, are performing the goodness because they want to be good, they want to be liked. But sometimes that is pushing something important a way about their feelings to do this. And if you do that for long enough, you get a big crisis. And my experience is, and I'm afraid this is coming from within as well, that when we're having a crisis, we want a quick solution. Mm -hmm. We want it now. Yeah. And the great thing about love is it makes us feel wonderful. Mm -hmm. It feels like a solution now, but it's not the answer to the question you were actually asking. And I think he, right now, it sounds like this, he's, he has shut down to her. So he's not willing to look. Maybe he's looking, I don't know. No, but it, with her, he doesn't seem to be willing to look at the relationship. And I don't think he's willing to look at his life either, because he's just got this new life and he's packaged away the old life, which you can do by putting it in a box, but the box is a leaky box. The real life the children, everything else will come leaking through. 
But we're not sort of interested in him. He's doing his stuff. We're not going to think about that. What we're going to think about is how can life be more bearable for this woman? Because she's in terrible pain at the moment. And I'm afraid, listening to what we've been talking about, we have to accept that pain. Yes. But something else is going to come through from this pain. So talk us through how something different might come through the pain. And that's also part of therapy anyhow, right? Where we encourage clients, maybe this woman now, to sit with the pain, right? Because she sometimes also in her mind has a certain kind of deadline. I would go away from that and more say, like she said already, she's taking pretty good care of herself. And I would encourage her to maybe open up on another level to the pain that she experienced to really see like he has moved out. He doesn't want to be in this relationship right now with her. And to let that reality in and see what actually unfolds in her life. That could be, and hopefully probably with help from an outside person, maybe a therapist, to say like, you know, how can I hold this pain? And then she might be surprised what is on the other side of the pain. We don't know. I've sat with many people who are like in the first place, it's like this terrible breakup. But then when you sit with the pain and you learn to hold it and not to judge it and to be curious about it, you get so much insight about yourself and your own life. Because sometimes you learn a lot about the past back from a child. What were your parents' attitudes to pain? Mm. What were your parents' attitudes to anger? Because mm-hmm. there might be quite a lot of unexpressed anger. <laughs> She's saying, you know, I haven't got angry. And on one level, it doesn't help just to shout and scream at your husband, but You've got to do something with this anger. Was she allowed to have anger as a child? Mm. And my suspicion is she wasn't. That also stood out for me, the, the shift to kindness so quickly. Also that she doesn't, you know, want to judge him so strongly. I wasn't sure exactly how it was phrased, but something like that. Instead of actually owning what happens in yourself and also see if something moves through through her, energetically also something might happen with him, right? Because they're they're in a dynamic, if they want to or not, even they're living in different relationships now. I mean, maybe they were like in the past, a conflict avoidant couple that was actually not speaking the truth of what is true in the relationship. I think that is probably a very pertinent point. Yeah. Because we think that conflict is bad in relationships. Mm -hmm. So let's push that out. But when you push out conflict, you have to dampen down your feelings. Hence my book, I Love You But I'm Not In Love With You. What happens is we don't just get rid of the anger and the frustration and all those other things. We end up closing down all our feelings, including the love. So conflict is really rather good because it can bring those feelings up to the surface and we have to look at them then. I mean, she's not going to like this, but this is a huge learning opportunity. A huge learning opportunity. And Going away, even it's hard, right? Because she's looking towards him, obviously the husband, but looking towards inward, looking more towards herself inward and saying like, okay, what's going on my on, on my side? Do I feel anger? What happened here in the relationship? What was not expressed? And can you be angry on your own behalf, not just on the children's behalf? Yes, that's also important. Because it's very easy to be angry on other people's mm-hmm. behalf because, you know, that's somehow righteous. But to be angry for yourself is really difficult. Mm -hmm. I think we've got to have that in some point. You don't have to give it to your husband, but you've got to actually do something with it rather than just push it down. Anger and classically, I mean, this is a stereotype, but classically for women especially, very hard often. Yes. Anger, as you said, like it might have been totally forbidden in the past. So instead of finding a relationship to that anger and an appropriate outlet... Right, that might be exercising, that might go going into a women's group of some kind. It might be writing letters to the husband that she never wants to send. You know, it's to approach him also at a particular time in her anger that he can hear her. I would say report the anger. Mm-hmm. By reporting the anger, I mean I am angry when you do this because yeah. as opposed to <laughs> slam door, tear up letters which is acting it out, Mm. let's report it. Because people can often cope with reported anger. You know, what do we do with slammed doors? Well, we either get defensive or just ignore it. It doesn't really get anywhere. So anger's okay, but channeled in a productive way. Yes. 
and, and so to, for her to find new ways, right? It might open new doors for her to find new ways to deal with her own frustration and anger. Maybe he comes around to talking to her also differently. We, we don't know that, but it might shake up a lot in her own life that then ultimately also might influence the relationship with him. Not that I want to give false hope or something, yeah. Yeah? but it, it just shakes everything up on that level. No? And it's a good shaking up. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for being a guest on this program. Well, not just a guest, but a witness on what makes life meaningful. So here comes the important question. What makes life meaningful for you? Mm. To be present with what is, to have an acceptance towards what comes to me, and an enjoyment and a gratitude Enjoyment and gratitude. Yeah. It's a big word, gratitude. Gratitude for, for what I'm receiving. You can easily think these are all the, the pleasant states, but I mean everything. My, my jealousy, my frustration, to, to find a relationship to it and the humanness in it, in it. And then also to, to understand for myself that I'm not this separate individual in the world, right? That, that, that I'm part of that that there's something that connects all of us. You are not alone. I'm not alone. You walk through life differently in that way. Even you might not get at all what you want from life, your ideas, no? The house, the husband, wife, whatever it is, no? Well, thank you very much. This is where most of our listeners will be leaving us, but I'm hoping that they're going to join our supporters club. Details on my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com/podcast. And if you become a member of our supporters club, the conversation continues. We're going to talk about the three things that Martina knows to be true. If you'd like to find out more about Martina and her work, she's a phobic when it comes to having a website, but she does <laughs> actually own a, an email address. I do. The details of the email address will be in the in the fact sheet that comes with this program. You'll find out details of my book, I Love You But I'm Not In Love With You as well. <laughs> but thank you very much. <laughs> thank you too. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.